Welcome back to the 140th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the perverse incentives in the medical industry, Joe Biden kind of hitting Tommy Tuberville over the head after his protests in the Senate, and a interesting proposal from the Biden administration to ban cigars. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling for me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So when we talk about the American system, and we have this deep love of our government and the people that are in it, Oh, wait, no, that's that's not true whatsoever. A lot of people don't actually love the government and the way that it reaches into their lives. And there's this growing sense that the government wants to be more involved in our lives, which is not necessarily increasing people's trust in it. You've probably seen the polls where people talk about trust in government being extremely, extremely low. Well, my question that goes along with this sort of sentiment is, is the government too involved? Has it become too paternalistic? I've been reading Milton Friedman, as you may have heard, if you listened to the Twitter tirade the other day, and he talks about this government paternalism that encourages the federal government to reach into our lives more and more because they know or believe to know what is best for us. And, you know, some people don't necessarily like that. Some people don't mind it, but when it comes to certain policies and certain overreach, a lot of people are not okay with it. So what do you think? Is the American system still too paternalistic or is it encroaching on our rights just enough? And no, that is not a slanted question. I promise I'm not leading you towards a specific answer at all. What? No. All right. Well, with that out of the way, let's jump into our first article. This one comes from the American Prospect, a sick system. The business of healthcare in America is deeply out of whack. So for those of you that have listened for quite some time, you may have heard a different article that I did talking about the perverse incentives in the medical industry. This one goes and takes another deep dive into understanding what's going on in the current medical system. And I will probably sprinkle in a little bit of Friedman here and there from what I'm reading to talk about some of the solutions that he proposes or even some of the problems that this person may have in common with them. Even though this is from the American Prospect, it's a very left-leaning article or a left-leaning publication that is putting out this article. There are some areas where Friedman and this author could agree on some different things. So let's jump to the beginning paragraph, which kind of lays it out. It is a bit more of a story type, so stick with me here for a little bit. It'll lay out what's going on and kind of set the scene. Quote, the old post office building in Washington with its observation tower that looms over the Federal Triangle once housed Donald Trump's hotel, but was converted into a Waldorf Astoria last summer. The Orient sensibility remains in its grand ballrooms, where it is early June. The ratio of humans to massive crystal chandeliers is unsettlingly low. Just about every corporate representative with the slightest relationship to health care had assembled to hear from Biden administration officials, members of Congress, and industry CEOs at Politico's Health Care Summit. It was fittingly co-sponsored by pharma companies, whose sole organically developed drug is a blend of ibuprofen and fomatide. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that wrong. 
that retails for $2,500 a bottle. And the lead trade group for the private equity industry, whose longtime leader, Drew Maloney, opened the summit with a panel on private equity's role in improving digital and virtual health. Following Maloney's lead, nearly every panelist spent some time touting the transformational potential of technology and artificial intelligence in healing patients, and not, incidentally, saving money. So what is the author trying to lay out here? You may be like, why did, why did you read that really long quote? It's meant to show the opulence, the over-the-topness of the corporate executives at these pharma companies and at these larger medical companies that come together, have these really large conferences, and then don't actually end up talking about issues that truly will help people and patients. Rather, they talk about issues that will help them with their bottom line. Now, if that comes with helping people, that's great. And of course, I'm not trying to say that pharma companies don't care about their patients or the people that they give their drugs to. But what the author is really trying to show out here is that at the end of the day, they are businesses. They're trying to come from the perspective that they don't have a customer focus anymore. They are no longer worried about fulfilling their Hippocratic oath to its fullest extent and worrying only about the patient, but how they can make money off of the patient. And let's be clear, this could be my interpretation of what the author is trying to say here, but if you go through the rest of this article, it's it's a very jaded perspective on the healthcare industry. And it talks about how there's been a lot of consolidation within the industry over the last few years. A lot of particular large healthcare providers are buying up lots of other small hospitals so that they can have a larger control over a certain market. If you live in the Shenandoah Valley, you may notice a lot of cent- Terra offices all across the valley. They've been slowly consolidating, buying up more hospitals, bringing out more minute clinics type of offices where people can just go in. And that, you know, that's great. I mean, let's be clear, they're bringing lots of different healthcare options to the valley. But also when they're the only provider for a whole bunch of miles and you have an insurance agency that does not, or a health insurance agency that does not want to work with Centera, you're, you're kind of out of luck. You're going to have to drive really, really far away. And because of the stranglehold that they are beginning to have, especially in the southern Shenandoah Valley, you see these negative effects on customers. Now, the author doesn't point to, to the Shenandoah Valley, doesn't necessarily directly call out Centera or any of these other companies. And I'm not trying to call them out and saying that they're being monopolistic. I'm not trying to say something like that. Just these natural, expansive measures that are needed in order for these companies to have a larger base of hospitals and healthcare locations in order to spread their costs out. They're trying to get economies of scale. They end up creating some more captive markets, especially in areas that don't necessarily have the resources to drive an hour and a half and go all the way to the UVA hospital. That's one of the best in Virginia. So, There's this also limited amount of innovation that the author really wants to touch on. So I'm going to go to a quote from them and then we'll come back to this discussion. Quote, during the coronavirus crisis, the mobilization of treatments and vaccines accelerated at a record speed. Associated technologies with mRNA could legitimately put a dent into cancer mortality. And Ozempic may have accidentally cured addiction. By the boasts of many in the field, we are on the precipice of extending lives and eliminating worse infirmities. 
The problem is because the country essentially lacks any institutions designed to broadly improve public health or medical advances are funneled through veritable gauntlets of gatekeepers, distributors, middlemen, subcontractors, loophole exploiters, conglomerates, and monopolies, all under the watchful eye of Wall Street investors. Managing a hospital or a clinic today requires hiring an ever more mushrooming cadre of lobbyists, consultants, and contractors to navigate the confusing new world. The science of healthcare points to a bright future. The business of healthcare points directly backwards. End quote. So this is one thing where I, I really like the last point where there's a whole bunch of bureaucrats and they're restricted to hiring a lot more support staff than doctors or innovators. And there's also a very interesting part where they're actually limited in what kind of doctors they can bring on. So when you read Milton Freeman, he's kind of trying to lambast the healthcare system. And he's saying the American Medical Association, which isn't as powerful as it is when he was writing his book nearly, wow, is it? Yeah, it's over 60 years ago. But because of the influence they have in the healthcare industry, they can directly make sure that the number of doctors coming out of medical schools that are approved by them are limited because they can say, hey, you hospitals here, I want you to only hire American Medical Association doctors, doctors that have been approved or come out of schools that are approved by us. And then because of the influencing power they have over the hospitals, they can use that to leverage their position and tell medical schools to stop admitting so many doctors in order to preserve the possible income of doctors up the chain. Now, I'm not necessarily fully aware if this is exactly still the case. But if you think about it, if there are a whole bunch of different certification boards that have direct control over what kind of people and which kind of educated people can enter into the medical field, then you are starting to have more restrictions on the people or the amount of people that can work in these hospitals on the medical side. And then when you add the burden that the author is trying to point out here of having a whole bunch of insurance middlemen, having a whole bunch of compliance officers and other bureaucrats, you are overinflating the one side of the business while devaluating another side of the business. And this overly stringent regulations and the focus on the bottom line, which is being promoted by Wall Street, as this author is trying to say, is actually hurting the industry, but also the patients. And it's setting up a, per a perverse incentive structure. So let me ask you this question. If Wall Street is wanting a pharma company, or let's just say a hospital chain, there's a public hospital chain that is on the NASDAQ. And they're pushing them to increase the amount of money that they give to their shareholders or just the stock price in general so that their shareholders become more enriched. Then these companies are going to say, okay, hey, we're getting pressure from these large owners like maybe BlackRock, Straits, State Street, Vanguard, any publicly traded fund that may invest, invest in them and want to make sure that their stock price is going up. They're going to say, okay. We, well, at this point, we've already monopolized or we've already you know, gotten to the point where economies of scale are starting to fail. We've already gotten as many hospitals as we can, and we've already gotten as many different small offices that export all of their accounting to the home office. So we already have economies of scale, and we're starting to lose that. Well, how do we start making money from here? Well, we can do two things. One, 
we can try to cut costs, which means we're going to fire some really expensive medical staff. We may trim down on the amount of bureaucrats that we have so we can maintain that economies of scale while also putting down the labor costs that we're putting out. Or also, they could do things like lowering the standard of care. Instead of directly looking at how many people they hire, they could say, oh, well, we're not going to have all those fancy pillows in the room. We're not going to have a as expensive of a meal. Instead of a Salisbury steak, peas, mushrooms, and then some applesauce, we'll just give you a Salisbury steak and some applesauce and some apple juice. So there are lots of different ways that they're trying to cut costs, which could directly affect the patient. And you may be thinking, well, Alex, you just made examples that apply to people that are actually in the hospital. And some of those things are more comfort than necessary. Well, then also think about it this way. Maybe instead of going for the top of the line, most expensive new titanium uh, stint, they go for a new composite stint, which is a little bit cheaper. They argue that it is on the bleeding edge of technology, but it's not as well tested and it ends up having a higher mortality rate or a higher failure rate in the patients that they put it in. So if you're encouraging these companies to raise their stock price and therefore cut costs if they're not willing to change anything else about their basic structure and they've already acquired so many different locations that they can't just keep expanding, then is that going to hurt the patient? Is that bottom line tightening? going to end up harming the patient? It's a serious question that needs to be addressed. And the author's point here is that there are so many medical innovations that are coming down the pipeline, but when they have to be filtered through, when they can't just be a Silicon Valley where they have disruptor firms that just come in and bring in this new technology and get it straight to the patient, no, when they have these new technologies, but they have to be filtered through the normal processes, they have to be sold through hospitals, they have to be insured or they have to be put through a special board, a medical board that approves them. When there's these sort of different regulations and tight policies in place, it is actually detrimental. Now, the the author would argue it's a little bit different. They would argue that it's because of private profiteering and these large corporations try to have a stranglehold that plays a part. I'm taking the angle of when there's overregulation and when there is overly stringent, overly parentalized or patronistic policies in place that say, oh, hey, hey, we as this medical board, we know what's best for our patients. And we know that you're bringing a new product to the market, but you have to come through us to get it verified first. You can't just try to get it out to the patients that may be willing to take on a little bit more of a risk for the possible benefits. So there are lots of different perspectives on why the system is messed up. But in essence, we can still agree that the incentive structure is one of the problems. And that's where I agree with this author, even though I disagree on some of the points of why and how they're going about in reaching those incentives. All right, let's jump to our second article, which I thought was kind of a funny one. I won't lie to you. It comes from crooksandliars.com. So you can you can see where this one is coming from. And it is not a pro, I would say it's a little bit of a pro Biden article, just a little bit, but honestly, it's more of a satirical kind of thing. Did Joe Biden just give Tommy Tuberville the finger? So for those of you who are not aware, Tommy Tuberville has been holding up the appointments of different military members because of a policy that was put in place 
by the Biden administration to allow for people in the military to travel to different states in order to get an abortion. So that's obviously a hotly debated topic. Tommy Tuberville, he is from Alabama. They have some very strict abortion laws, and he obviously has a very strong point of view on this one. So as the senator, he is saying, hey, I'm not going to approve of these military appointments. And you may be thinking, well, hey, hold on. If he's just one and there's 99 other senators that are okay to approve these, what's going on? Well, part of the process is there is a quickening uh, kind of measure in place where they just, the Senate doesn't bring it up to a full vote like they do when trying to approve other nominations. They just say, is anybody objected? Nobody's objected? Okay, cool. But then all it takes is one person. And yes, I'm not getting as detailed. I don't have all the exact names. I'm trying to give you a brief summary. Then that one person who objects can basically hold up the entire process. Well, Tommy Tupperville has been doing this for quite some time. And obviously, Joe Biden's starting to get a little pissy with him. Quote, Senator Tommy Tupperville is new to politics and especially the bare-knuckle politics President Joe Biden has been involved in for decades now. I mention this because I'm sure that Tommy Tuberville actually thought he could hold up all the military appointments forever and ever, and Sleepy Joe would just sit there and nod sagely while Tuberville then indulged in tweets like this one, accusing Biden of being a rotten commander-in-chief. And then there's this terrible tweet that he put out. I don't want to read it. I don't want to give Tommy Tuberville air on this one. I just think the rest of the article is a little bit more interesting anyway. Quote, he may have wanted to reconsider this impetus act because this same day, at this same time that the tweet went public, President Joe Biden squashed all hope of Space Force Command moving to Alabama. I'm sure it's not because Mr. the Mr. President knows bare-knuckle politics and is choosing to reverse a policy that was ill-conceived and meant to reward Tupperville's own state with lots of military dollars, end quote. So, for those of you who don't know, the Space Force for a long time is based out of Colorado, and they have been pushing to get closer to where a lot of the NASA contractors have been working out of in Huntsville, Alabama. And, you know, it kind of makes sense if a lot of the NASA contractors were built up there in Alabama during the space age, and they have a lot of infrastructure there, they have a lot of plants, and Space Force is meant to protect our assets in space, then, yeah, of course you wouldn't want to be close to those contractors. You don't want to have to get a contract from them. And then, oh, by the way, there's an extra $10,000 in shipping for us to get it on 20 different 18-wheelers and get it across to Colorado. So they've been really gunning to get to Alabama. And uh, like I said earlier, remember where Tommy Tupperville represents? He represents Alabama. So this is the kind of the inverse of quid pro quo. Rather than saying, hey, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. It's, you're not working with me. Now I'm going to make your life tough. I'm going to make your reelection campaign really hard because now Alabamans who would have liked the extra jobs that probably would have come from Space Force relocating there, now they're going to say, dang it, Tupperville, you are being so stubborn on this thing that we don't necessarily care about, and now we're losing jobs from Space Force. And, of course, if they're really partisan, they'll just blame Biden either way. And also, if they really care about abortion, then they'll say, hey, it's worth it. But for the rest of the people who care more about jobs and the stability of their lives and potential economic gains that they can get, more than abortion, they are going to be outraged to this one. And that's why, it, you know, I don't think it's a necessarily great move on Biden's part. 
I wouldn't want Trump to do the same thing. I wouldn't want Obama and Bush to outright say, and let's be clear, Biden's not coming out and saying, hey, this is because Tomerville's not working with me. Tupperville's not working with me. But it is kind of implied that, yeah, you, you kind of screwed yourself over here, man. You kind of made it hard for me to see Alabama in a good light when you're doing this kind of dumb stuff. So it's kind of the backroom talk like, hey, well, I'm sorry that we canceled your contract in Alabama, but, you know, I can't necessarily do too much with the military policy here. I can't ensure that the new facility would be staffed properly if you're not letting our new members or the new appointments in the military through. There could be some backhanded way that Biden brings this up. But I, I think it's a little bit underhanded, but also I do appreciate the political nature of it. If I was watching House of Cards and I saw this move come up, I'd be like, good for you, Frank. You know what? That's kind of devious and I kind of appreciate it. But this is not House of Cards. This is not a political drama that you see on TV. This is real life and it affects real people. So when I see something like this, I'm not necessarily happy with either person. Maybe Tupperville should actually, instead of trying to hold up the entire process and possibly leave our military limp, Maybe he should get a bill passed through the House and then through the Senate to take away the provision that the Biden administration is putting in place for military women. Maybe that's the case. Maybe he should do that. Maybe he should go through the proper channels. Then again, I also think that the filibuster and things like this exist to be used by the people to make sure that their opinion is heard. So I think there's lots of different layers to this. I just thought it was kind of funny when the author framed it this way as this is Joe Biden's good old rough and tumble politics. Quote, oh, that Biden ability to punch someone in the teeth while saying, bless your heart, is perfect here because the decision to move the Space Force command from Colorado to Alabama was originally possibly conceived by Trump as a big wet kiss to the state that tossed Doug Jones in favor of one of the arguably dumbest senators ever to walk in the doors of the Senate chamber. Unless, any, we, unless we ignore the obvious, yes, abortion policies do have a role to play here. If Tuberville is going to block all of Biden's military nominations because he wants to make sure women in the military are ordered to do what men say, then Biden is, by God, not going to let Alabama share in any of those yummy Space Force command dollars. Hardball? You betcha, Tommy. So, you know, a little bit, a little bit jokey, a little bit, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Snide. And the author obviously has their biases. And I do like seeing, like I said earlier, there is something appreciable about people using the powers they have in order to make sure that their opinion is heard. But when it comes at the cost of military members or when it comes at the cost of jobs that would go to Alabama or people that would live in that district where the jobs would be coming, it is disappointing to see people and politicians play with these people's lives like that. But unfortunately, that is how our system works. We have one more article that is going to be talking about something else that the Biden administration is trying to do top down. And I think this is, a, this is an interesting one, to say the least. It comes from the Washington Examiner. Will Biden administration ban cigars? So when you first hear this, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, we already banned Cubans, so maybe we're going to ban another country's fine cigars or something like that. No, no, it's not quite as overarching as that, or at least I don't think that it would actually come into place like that. But the, this article likes to make a little bit of a different 
argument. So let's see how they frame this overreach by the president in this case. And maybe I just kind of gave away what they're going to say, but, quote, what is it with the left that they want to ban nearly everything that is fun or convenient? Gas stoves, dishwashers, plastic straws, gas cars, snowmobiles, diving boards, and now the health busybodies want to ban cigars as well. So actually, let's go back here. Gas stoves, we've seen some policies like that come in place. I have not seen anything personally about dishwashers, but I, I clean a lot of dishes by hand, and I don't think it's that much worse than using a dishwasher. It is less convenient and more time-consuming, but I don't think it's that much worse. Plastic straws, honestly, it's not that big of a deal. I just hate paper straws because I reuse cups and straws all the time, or I will go back and refill the drink like five times, and maybe the straw falls apart by that point. But, you know, that's just a personal thing. Don't think it's that big of a deal. Gas cars, we have seen policies at least in California, and some talk from Biden to have a larger focus on selling EV cars. Snowmobiles, I have not seen any talk about snowmobiles Snowmobiles being banned, but if that's the case, it's kind of sad. And diving boards. I have not seen any legislation, any talk, anything out there in the media. And let's be clear, just because I'm saying I haven't seen some of these doesn't mean that they're not out there. But it's just one of those things where it's not in the zeitgeist yet. It's not heavily public. So maybe this author is a little bit overly niche on some of these topics. Quote, recently a gang of senators led by Jeff Merkley wrote a letter to the Food and Drug Administration Commissioner Robert Califf urging the agency to ban or heavily regulate flavored cigar sales. Under the pressure from the health lobby, the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products said it's primed to take action in the weeks ahead. They say underage teenagers are smoking these cigars and aren't at, and are at risk of becoming addicted. So let's pause here. You notice how the article says, are they going to ban cigars? And now we've moved on a little bit and says, oh, are we going to ban or they're trying to get them to ban flavored cigars because they tend to speak to a younger audience who doesn't necessarily like the flavor of normal cigars, but they kind of like the little sweet or more candy flavors or maybe like grape game leaves, if you know what those are. If you're from the Shenandoah Valley or anywhere in rural Virginia, you'll definitely know what game leaves are or backwoods and so on and so forth. Or if you have a really interested interesting or storied past, then you'll probably know what they are. You know, a little wink, wink and nudge, nudge to that community out there. You know who you are. So obviously the author buried the lead and they're saying something different. Now they did clarify within the first two paragraphs, but I, it's one of those dis small disingenuous things that I don't necessarily love about media. But what is the rest of the conversation around this? It basically, it comes down to two facts and I'll read one quote in We'll, we'll try to get the other one in here, but I don't think the second part is necessarily as important. Quote, in 2009, Congress and President Barack Obama enacted the Family Smoking Prevention Tobacco Control Act to give the federal government the tools it needs to keep cigarettes, vapes, and other addictive tobacco substances out of our children's hands. Now, however, the FDA is using this authority to advance its political agenda in ways that exceed the original intent and purpose of the legislation. The notion that the FDA needs to act to stop teenagers from smoking flavored cigars is simply not true. Youth smoking of cigars, including flavored cigars, has plummeted to historic lows over the years. 
The FDA now knows these statistics because they were one of the ones that funded definitive studies published by the New England Journal of Medicine. The study analyzed the tobacco use of over 13,651 children, ranging from the age of 12 to 17 years, and the data show that only 2.3 had ever smoked a traditional cigar. Less than 1% had tried one in the past 30 days. That's hardly an epidemic of cigar-smoking youngsters. Okay, yeah, so let's actually take a step back here. And this actually may be a different way to frame the issue because they're looking at just cigar smoking here for people that are in the know. And I guess I'm going to give up the hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing that I said earlier. A lot of these flavored cigar wraps are actually used for smoking marijuana. So if you unwrap the cigar and you take out the tobacco in the middle, or as we used to call them, the guts, and then you put marijuana in them, you roll them up, then you make a blunt. Most kids probably know what's going on here. They know what a blunt is. At least if they smoke, they know what a blunt is. And maybe that's why these congressmen are saying, hey, we need to ban it so that kids can't actually get these cheap and flavorful cigars so that kids can't use them for smoking marijuana. Maybe that's a possibility. Or maybe when this study asks uh, who, what kids have just smoked these flavorful cigars, they're asking the wrong question. Maybe it should be, have you purchased these flavorful cigars and use them for maybe marijuana or some other purpose? So I think that they're actually missing the ball here. And I'm not trying to say that the senators are coming for marijuana. They are Democrats. They're probably not doing that. But I think it's an interesting conversation as to why they're coming after the flavored cigars rather than just going after all cigars. If you have a problem with cigars and kids smoking them, the kids are probably who are already addicted are probably going to go up to normal cigars. And kids that really want to try them are going to just smoke cigars anyway. They don't care if it's flavored or not. Or they'll find a way to add their own flavoring, like dipping it in something. So I think that if they're really just wanting going for cigars, then they would go for cigars. And maybe there's an underlying thing here where they see that kids are using these products with marijuana in tandem, and they don't want kids to get addicted to the nicotine that may be in the cigar wrap while also smoking the marijuana. I don't know. There's an interesting conversation that needs to be going there. But once again, it's that commentary of, oh, this patronistic state. Oh, this paternalistic state. Hey, we know what's best for you. We know that you should not be smoking these flavored cigars. I'm so, I'm so disappointed in you, Jimmy. I don't want you smoking these flavored cigars. And you know what? We're going to ban them to make sure you can't, rather than letting kids make their own mistakes and realize that maybe these things aren't great. Now, should we outright encourage them to do it? No. Should we allow these companies to directly advertise to them? No. Should they be allowed to make flavors like Skittles? Maybe not. Maybe there is a serious conversation that needs to be had around this. But rather than outright saying, no, no, we know best and that we're going to ban them outright, we should have an actual conversation about what should be allowed and shouldn't be allowed rather than just saying the conversation has to either be banned or don't ban. I think that's overly simplistic and it makes the American people sound really dumb that they can't at least have a legitimate conversation about what they should and shouldn't be able to do with their own time, money, lungs, body, so on and so forth. Sorry, my libertarian streak came out a little bit there. 
please, you know, for people that are in my audience that are more liberal or more conservative, you know, ignore that libertarian streak there for a minute and just pretend that I said something that you liked because I'm not going to silence myself in order to give my opinion. And sometimes the libertarians are not going to like what I say about social values and forcing them, or not forcing them, but actually trying to implement them through certain legal measures. And sometimes liberals won't agree with anything I say whatsoever. So just, just now. You know, if you need to skip that last section to make this a little bit more pleasing for your sensitive ears, then go right ahead. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. This one comes from the Dodo. Couple opens box of pizza and finds something pink moving inside of it. Quote, when Joe Cunningham and his partner adopted an adorable puppy named Teddy earlier this year, they likely had no idea exactly how their lives would change, but soon... Teddy snuck his way squarely into their hearts. And this guy is very, very adorable, no doubt, but he, he seems to be a bit of a troublemaker. Quote, we just sat down for a little pizza takeaway, Cunningham told the Dodo. We put our favorite show on, and then, to our shock, we looked down. Upon opening the pizza box, the couple found it included a topping that they hadn't ordered, and it was moving. The squishy pink object inside the box wasn't a topping at all. It was Teddy, end quote. And this is what happens when you just let your dog roam around, and now they're going to try to get into your pizza. They're going to try to lick into the, the box in order to get anything that's going on there. You know, you need to keep these dogs in check because otherwise they're just going to be too cute, and we can't have that because then all of our time will be wasted on social media just looking at cute animals. All right. So with that article done, if you want to see any of the photos, videos, TikToks from that one, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button where you can find this article and all the other ones from today. Also down there in the description, there will be the link to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, as well as the Twitter handle at Your Daily Flip, where I post Twitter tirades every Tuesday and Thursday. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.